Hello, and welcome to a special edition of The Buzz, a bank automation news podcast. Today is August 2nd, 2023. My name is Victor Sweezy, and I'm the editorial intern at Bank Automation News. Today is the last episode of our Global Startup Cities series, where we have taken you to some of the most innovative tech hubs around the world to give you a look at these startup cultures and the markets they serve. Along the way, we've talked to fintech founders from these cities about the products they're bringing to market. On this final episode, we're bringing it back to Toronto to get a look inside Canada's startup capital just over the border. We'll be talking about the immigrant experience in Toronto, the collaborative ethos shared by Canadian founders, and some of the resources that have grown in the city to support them. Joining me today is the co-founder of Uplink, a startup using AI and alternative data sets to help financial institutions lend to small and medium-sized businesses. Please welcome Ron Benegbi. Yeah, sure. So first of all, Victor, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, like you said, I'm, I'm founder and CEO of Uplink. Um, in a sentence, we are a credit decisioning support technology for small business lenders. So in English, what that means is we provide uh, institutions that lend money to small business, a lot of data and a lot of insight to help support their evaluation process and their credit adjudication process. And ultimately though, the, the decisioning still stays with the, with the lender, but we, we support them. Um, so a little bit about me. I'm a serial founder, fifth startup. Uh, by the way, I've been told it's my last startup, so very excited about that. But really more importantly is I'm an immigrant and my family migrated to, to Canada in the early 70s. We were poor, we had no money. My dad was baking bread at night to put food on the table for our family. And he went to a bank in 1973. And I know I'm dating myself a little bit because I look exceptionally young. I was around in 73 and he asked the banker for a small business loan. And the banker told him, look, Mr. Bernagby, you really don't qualify for how the bank lends to small business. However, I believe in people. And here's $5,000. And my dad was able to take $5,000 in 1973, start a small business, which turned into a medium-sized business over time. And that really became the springboard, the backbone for our family's lives in, in a new country. And I, I share that because that, that really correlates directly to your question. Mm-hmm. I've grown up in a small business family. My successes and my failures have come as a small business owner. So at Uplink, Our mission is to work with lenders and through the use of data, through the use of science and some pretty sophisticated tech needs, provide them the information they need to help them extend additional working capital into the hands of small business. So in other words, say yes when they were initially going to say no. So it is a very personal and meaningful story for me, Victor. I mean, small business has always been underserved in financial services. No one would argue that. But if you look at the impact that COVID had on small business owners all over the world, and now if you look at the impact that, you know, the economy is having and we're in this sort of uncertain times, whether some days we're in a recession, other days we're not, 
access to fair and ethical credit has never been more difficult for a small business owner to to obtain. So if we can just help turn a few no's into yeses, we would really be serving our purposes. Let's dive in maybe on a, on a technical level a little more into how Uplink's credit decisioning process actually works. would love to hear more about what kind of alternative data sources you use, maybe some of your most unique uh, types of categories of data that you pull from, and you know any use cases and, and ways that AI and machine learning might be involved in your credit decisioning process. I think our listeners would be really interested in that as well. In terms of alternative data, um, Here's how I would I would I would talk about this. You know, for years and going back to when my dad was applying for a loan, lenders would evaluate a small business the same way. Give me your financial records. Let me pull some type of credit score on you. And then from that, I'll make a credit decision. Well, that's a very antiquated way of thinking about credit, especially in today's day and age where the profile or the DNA of the small business owner has changed significantly over the last few years. So, you know, a lot of new small businesses have cropped up. Uh, A lot of these small businesses are sort of, um, you know, sort of in the gig economy, so to speak. Um, They don't have established financials or credit reports, and ultimately they're they're, they're set up for failure. So when we talk about alternative data, what we present to a lender is, we allow them to evaluate the entire ecosystem of the business itself and look at all that information in context, meaning environmental data, community data, um, market information data, all of these different types of data sources in combination with traditional financials and credit scores. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to downgrade or poo-poo credit scores, but if you look at them in concert with all of these other macro and microeconomic types of data sources, then you as a lender have a much better uh, perspective on the true health of the business. So, you know, you ask the question, well, like, so what are you talking about? Well, It can be things like cell phone data. It can be traffic information. It could be information from governmental sources like, you know, the U.S. Bureau of Labor or the Census Bureau or Department of Housing or Department of Commerce and and on and on and on. I mean, in some cases, we actually use data that we acquire from a NASA feed of looking at satellite imageries sure because there are all kinds of small business operators out there it's not just tech so it's what we do is we tap into all of these sources but we don't just dump it on a lender because at the end of the day a lender won't know what to do with it we crystallize it for them we leverage the years of experience and insights that we've garnered from the programs um, our customers have utilized over that time and ultimately we make a recommendation and we provide it the recommendation in a very very detailed manner as to why we think this is a good or a bad loan and ultimately though the decision does stay stay with the lender so that's a little bit about what we're doing and how we do it i hope i answered um 
your few questions, but if I missed one, just fire it over. No, absolutely. I I really appreciate that. And uh, you know, you really piqued my interest with some with the uh, the traffic data and the NASA data. Can you tell me a little bit more specific use case for how that might be relevant in? Um, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you well, if you took look at traffic data. So let's say you're a restaurant. Well, that's really really important. If if we can get information about traffic flow and patterns in your specific neighborhood, that's a really important piece of information to determine what, you know, potential future performance could look like beyond just, again, traditional financials and bureau scores. If you look at like things like, I, I, yeah, I use satellite imagery. People love that. So I'll give you a use case. So let's say you're a manufacturer and you're applying for a loan with a bank. And you're telling the bank, listen, we run seven days a week. We're running night shifts because this is where we're manufacturing this widget, whatever the widget is. Well, if we have access to satellite imagery that can then capture sort of heat patterns and heat signals over your location. And we notice that on the weekend, it's like there's nothing there. But during the week, at, at during these hours, we're getting different types of readings. Well, we know that they're fibbing or they're stretching the truth a little bit. So those are the kinds of things that the system can look at and it intelligently. And this is where, you know, leveraging um, different uh, AI techniques helps us develop models that ultimately attenuate directly to the lender, but also specifically to the applicant itself. And that's something that is a true point of differentiation for us against others. And and tell me about some of the banks that you that you partner with. Who are some of the lenders that you use your data to advise? Right now, where we are with our business is we are in heavy proof of concept mode with a number of banks all over the world. And we typically take that approach first because it's a pretty big deal when you're going to a lender and even though we're not making the decision for them, you're talking about potentially transforming their loan book, in which case you've got risk, you've got compliance, you've got IT security, you've got the business itself, all have to kind of look at this. So, you know, the, the proof of concept or POC approach, like try before you buy, um, has resonated very well. So right now we're working with two of the large, uh, two of the top five banks in Canada. We're working with two top 20 uh, small business lenders in the U.S. We're working with one in Mexico. We're working with a couple in Africa, and I'm hoping to be able to share that you know by as early as you know next month we can add uh, Hong Kong and India to that list as well. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a global approach in terms of we can help anyone who's lending the small business and anyone who wants to make some type of meaningful impact on their loan book. In the spirit of comparing Canada and, and the U.S., uh, maybe if we could zoom out a little bit and compare the startup cultures in, in, in Toronto to, to, you know, some of the other startup hubs around the world, maybe take Silicon Valley in the U.S. and London. Um, what makes Toronto unique? Yeah, well, you know, it's hard for me to answer that just because I'm I don't know what the startup culture in Silicon Valley is like or sure. it is in Israel or it is in London. But, you know, as as far as 
Toronto goes, um, you know, I can I could talk to that. It's it's certainly what I feel is a tight knit community where anyone kind of in this community is open to helping one another. There's sort of a, a pay it forward mentality here uh, that I'd like to think exists within Toronto. Um, yeah, I mean, the community itself has grown substantially over the years, especially in fintech and especially with the organizations that support technology here in Toronto. So I would tell you that, you know, you can, if you wanted, you could probably attend some sort of tech event, whether virtually or in person, just about every night of the week here in Toronto, there's always something going on. And being um, a pretty large metropolis onto its own, you've got some You've got some great entrepreneurs in here, and 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 a big reason for that is because I, you know, Toronto has always been known as fairly diverse and multicultural, and you have a lot of different ethnicities and immigrants like myself and my family who have come uh, at one point from a different country, and you know, many of them have decided to to you know, go into the startup world. So it's great because we get to meet different different people from different cultures, um, different perspectives, and they certainly bring that added element to the entrepreneur world. And I can tell you, it's exciting. Like I've, I've made a lot of friends just being in the community, um, not necessarily by working with these companies, but just like I said, bumping into them in an event, whether it be in person, or, you know, you're at a sort of a Zoom seminar and you see them and, you know, people start talking and then you you reach out. So overall, I would tell you that, look, it's a it's a great place to be. It's a big city, but it feels like a, in many ways, it feels like a small town. And that that's how I would describe Toronto in my in my from my view. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe how Toronto became the startup hub that it is now? Yeah, I, I mean, I would tell you that I think Toronto really started to take shape as a tech hub in the kind of early to mid 2000s. I would tell you that um, a big a big jumping stone is an organization called Mars. Uh, and no, it's not the planet and it's not the chocolate bar company. Mars is um, an innovation ecosystem. Um, I like to think of it as almost as a platform to which it, it has four different tracks, like different types of startups, like clean tech, digital health, uh, enterprise software, and, and fintech. And it supports these ventures through different programs that originally were government funded, both federally and provincially. But over time, as you know, government funded funding naturally declined or has gotten more difficult to obtain, corporate sponsorship really stepped in. So I think Mars has played a, a critical role in the in the ecosystem and has grown, has helped grow and develop that ecosystem over time. Um, there are other organizations that have also played a big role. The one the one that really resonates with me is an organization called uh, TechTO. Uh, started by an individual named Alex Norman, um, probably sort of Mr. Tech Canada, if I would describe Alex. But 
it started off as a kind of a small community gathering, trying to help a few startups. And all of a sudden, TechTO has grown into Montreal, you know, Montreal Tech and Vancouver Tech. And really, it's a it's a community for all startups in Canada. It's a, it's a Canadian uh, community and they host a bunch of different events, both in person and online. Uh, newsletters go out a couple times a week. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of information is garnered from them. And then accordingly, you know, there's um, a lot of uh, there's some really good media focused specifically in Toronto. Probably the most prominent one is an uh, organization called BetaKit, which everyone kind of defers to as the sort of the go-to um, go-to source for information on all things tech in Canada. And then there are a few technology writers as well that are very well known. So, you know, over time it has really, really grown. And as more venture capital dollars started to enter the ecosystem, uh, both from Canadian firms as well as U.S. firms. And I can tell you there are a lot of U.S. firms who invest in Canadian companies and Toronto-based companies. Uh, and I'm proud to say that most of our investors are actually American. Um, that has really helped the community grow and flourish and become what I believe is a top 20 tech community globally um as ranked by different startup reports out there so i hope that answers your questions i'm sure there are a lot of other great communities out there as well definitely definitely and that's really exciting to see and you know looking forward i guess with with, with all that momentum what are some fintechs that you think we should be watching coming out of toronto yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, I think there's just a lot of great companies. There's there's one that, you know, pops into my head um, called Lotly. Uh, they're, uh, they're sort of a hybrid fintech kind of prop tech, um, but they're doing some really exciting things uh, with respect to real estate and trying to help you, you as a potential homeowner get access to your first home. And I think that is a really, really big problem. It's certainly a huge problem in Toronto. And I can tell you uh, as a father of like, um, oh, she's not a millennial, she's a Gen Z. It's just really, really hard to like buy your first home. And, uh, and, and I'm pretty sure that other markets here in Canada, um, they're experiencing the same thing. So they're doing some really exciting and creative things around um, how they use financing to help these individuals uh, get access to real estate that they can own. Um, there's also a really interesting company sort of in the fintech and tech space called Walnut, which is doing some really cool things around uh, embedded insurance. And insurance, again, is another problematic area where, you know, rates are kind of like rates and access to fair um, and um, market market value policies are are tough to get, especially for, for, for startups and especially for fintechs. So, you know, those and that's, so that company's Walnut. So those are the two that kind of drop off my head. But certainly there's there's quite a few. And, you know, we're all 
kind of trying to take it one day at a time and grind it out. So, um, you know, hopefully many, many will succeed. You've been listening to The Buzz, a bank automation news podcast. Please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. And as a reminder, you can rate this podcast on your platform of choice. Thank you for your time and be sure to visit us at bankautomationnews.com for more automation news.